We are in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. Would you uh, follow as I read that passage? The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we just are in awe of you. We're in awe of your power, of your majesty, of your grace, of your love, of your justice. We are in awe of everything you are. We're in awe that you would even think about we human beings. What is man that you are mindful of him? But you are, Lord. You took notice of our need that we were separated from you by our sin, by our refusal to have your way, and, but our decision to have our own. And you, Lord, you did the thing that is just amazing to us. You sent your Son, your only Son, not just to walk among us, not just to teach, as important as those, thing, those things are, not just to do the miraculous, but you sent him here so that he would go to Calvary's cross and bear our sin in his innocent body. We can't even fathom such love and such grace and such mercy. And we know, Father, that you did that for the worst of sinners and that each of us, because of our sin nature, fits that category. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you that we simply have to put our trust in your son, Jesus Christ. And we can have eternal life. We can be part of your family. We can pass from death to life. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus promised the abundant life. He said in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for you and for me? See, many of us, and I, and I think maybe particularly Christians who've been believers for a long time, aren't experiencing that abundance. And I think that we see in our passage this morning the reason for that is we expect little from God. We expect little from God. We are satisfied with the little that we can do. Why is that? It's because we do not live by faith. We live by our own wits too many times. We do not live by faith. We live by our own human wisdom. Like us, the disciples had to be taught to think big and to expect much. For we have a big God. And in the context of our passage this morning, the question I think for us is, do we want a bite or do we want a banquet in our spiritual lives? Do we want a bite or do we want a banquet in our spiritual lives? I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in one of our sermons, William Carey, who is the father of modern missions. He lived from 1761 to 1834 and he had this amazing saying that still is true today. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. You see, in his day, the church was moribund. It was turned in upon itself. It had no sense of ministry, no sense of reaching out beyond itself, no sense of the greatness of God, no sense of what God could do. And he had to battle them. He had to convince them that it was biblically right to want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? But he lived by that motto, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I wonder how each of us would interpret that in our lives. Are we expecting great things from God? Are we attempting great things for God? There's another part to our passage this morning, and that is, a question for each of us. What problem or what challenge in our life is too big for Jesus? What problem, what challenge in your life and in my life is too big for Jesus? Remember, He wants to give abundance. He wants to give abundance. Our passage this morning is paralleled in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21, Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. This miracle of feeding the 5,000 is so 
important a miracle, so much important for us to study that it's in all four Gospels. It's recorded in all four Gospels. And as always, each of the Gospels adds a little something to help us to understand the full picture. Our passage, Mark 6, verses 30 to 44, divides into two sections. First section is Jesus cares. That's verses 30 to 34. In our first section, verses 30 to 34, we're going to see the compassion of Jesus Christ. He wasn't annoyed by the crowds. He wasn't annoyed by the attention. He wasn't annoyed by all the activity. He had compassion. We'll talk more about that in a moment. The second part of our passage is verses 35 to 44, and that is Jesus satisfies. Jesus cares in verses 30 to 34. Jesus satisfies in verses 35 to 44. We read in verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus. I believe he's talking there about the 12, the 12 that he set aside earlier in chapter 3. Called the 12, he named them apostles. He had sent them on a mission. We studied that in chapter 6. We read in verses 12 and 13 that they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. These same apostles, these twelve, these who were sent on this ministry, this mission, they gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. As we look at the training of the twelve, it's so important to see how all of the pieces fit together. The training of the twelve by Jesus was designed to produce faith. It was designed to encourage their faith. It was designed for them to, to live by faith, to live by this motto that we're talking about, expecting great things for God, attempting great things for God. The training of the twelve was meant to do that. The training of the twelve was meant to prove that Jesus was the Messiah and was able to provide for his people They were learning that just both by Jesus' words and by watching Jesus in action, by watching Jesus' ministry, by watching Jesus' healing, by watching Jesus raise people from the dead. They also learned that as Jesus put them in difficult spots. That's one of the things I like about this passage this morning. He puts them in a difficult spot and then says, do something. He often does that to us. Puts, them in a, puts us in a difficult or impossible stuff, uh, situation and then says, do something. It's in your hands, but I got your back. It's in your hands, but I got your back. Well, they reported on their ministry, their works, their words, as we read just a moment ago, in chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, they taught on this ministry trip. They healed people on this ministry trip. And they cast out demons on this ministry trip. Verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, 
Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. They reported on their ministry. They reported on the things they did. They reported on their teaching. And Jesus said, you have had the activity. Now you need the rest. You have had the activity. Now you need the rest. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. The word quiet place literally is remote place. To a remote place. They needed fellowship and they needed renewal. As one author said, there is a time for rest as well as for work in the service of Christ. That is a tremendous principle that we see propagated here, but it's a tremendous principle that you and I need to put into our lives as believers in Christ, as those who love Jesus Christ, those who want to serve. And we have so many great people like that in Del Rio Bible Church. So many people who have a heart to serve Jesus Christ. So many people who have a heart to serve each other, to serve others in the body. So many people who have a heart to reach out to non-believers. But that's a great statement by this author. There is a time for rest as well as for work. There is a time, as Jesus says, come with me by yourselves. By the way, the King James says, come apart with me. Come apart with me. Vance Havner, being the clever wordsmith that he is, said, if you don't come apart and rest, you will come apart. If you don't come apart and rest, you will come apart. I think that's, that's a great interpretation of this passage. If you don't come apart and rest, you will come apart. You see, there are twin problems, twin issues that believers face. They're at opposite ends of the scale. The first problem is frantic activity. And some churches promote frantic activity. We try not to. It does get a little busy around here from time to time, a lot of time. We don't try to promote busyness. We don't try to interfere with your family time. We don't try to interfere with what God wants to do through you on your job, through you in your neighborhood. We don't want to compete with that as a church. But there can be frantic activity, and many churches promote frantic activity. Unless you're there every night of the week, something's wrong with you. You're not spiritual. That's not our philosophy of ministry. And if you don't know what our philosophy of ministry is, I hope you'll come on August 13th. This is a commercial break. <laughs> come on August 13th to our next welcome lunch. And we'll go over that. Right, Chris? Frantic activity is one. The second problem that we face is the opposite end of the scale, and that's apathy. Too much withdrawal. Too much withdrawal. William Barclay, who's great at background, said this, There are two dangers in life. First, there is the danger of too constant activity. No man or woman can work without rest, and no one can live the Christian life unless he gives himself times with God. You see, our usefulness of God for, for, with God comes out of our time with God. 
It may well be that the whole trouble in our lives is that we give God no opportunity to speak to us because we do not know how to be still and to listen. We give God no time to recharge us with spiritual energy and strength because there is no time when we wait upon Him. How can we shoulder life's burdens if we have no contact with Him who is the Lord of all good life? How can we do God's work unless in God's strength? And how can we receive that strength unless we seek in quietness and in loneliness the presence of God? Let me say it another way that's not as eloquent as William Barclay, but I think may help us to understand for too many of us, God becomes background noise in our lives. For too many of us as believers in Jesus Christ, God becomes background noise in our lives. What do I mean by that? Well, let me try to give you an illustration. Uh, Kathy, many of you know, went to Hong Kong for two years as a journeyman missionary. And when she came back, she was allowed to bring some things back from Hong Kong. And one of the things she brought back was a wall clock that chimed. Had a beautiful chime and if you can keep it working. And so we enjoyed that chime until one day it stopped. This is many years ago now. And we missed that chime, but we didn't want to put the money out to get it fixed, and you can never find anybody to fix those. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, finally we decided, you know, we missed that chime. So let's get it fixed. So we did what we had to do, we found somebody to fix it, and it was fixed, and we brought it home, and we put it on the wall, and, and we wound it up, and every half hour and every hour, it would chime, and they were the most beautiful sounding chimes, and we brought it home, put it on the wall, and for several weeks after that, there wasn't one time that clock chimed that we didn't say to each other, isn't it great to have that back again? Isn't it great to be able to hear the beautiful, muted chimes? But do you know after about two or three or four weeks, we didn't talk about it at all? Why? It had become background noise to our lives. That which was so beautiful, that which, which we desired so earnestly became background noise. I think that's what happens to many of us with God. He becomes background noise in our lives. There's a story told about a blind man who was invited to attend the wedding of a friend. The couple had chosen to be married in a village church that was known for its picturesque qualities. As the couple left the chapel, the groom's mother said to him, What a pity that you couldn't see the chapel. It really is so lovely and such a pretty garden around it. She repeated this before mutual friends at the reception, and yet a third time after the photos came back, the blind man just shrugged his shoulders each time and tried to change the subject. Didn't she hear the bells? 
The man thought to himself, for him the bells that had rung before and after the ceremony had been magnificent. The air had been filled with their vibration and the ground had seemed to tremble at their song. He had been astonished at how many different patterns and tones were rung from the tower and how the bells had created an atmosphere of both joy and solemnity. The blind man finally concluded that the groom's mother hadn't even noticed the bells, the part of the ceremony that had been for him the most magnificent accompaniment. She, with all her senses, had experienced only part of the beauty. He, however, had experienced all that was available to him. Do we still hear the chimes? Do you still hear the chimes in your life? Whatever may represent those chimes for us, it was this wall clock. What is it in your life that represents these chimes? And do you still hear them? And are you still amazed at them? Has God become background noise to our lives? There is a devotional in the men's devotional Bible that talks about our need to be with God. And by the way, ladies, the points aren't just for men. It just happens to be the men's devotional Bible. The points are for every one of us. The writer asked the question, what do you do to stay in shape? Hit the gym every morning, strap on your Nikes and run a few miles, bike to work. Interestingly, we live in a world that encourages men and women to make their bodies strong but neglects their spirit. As a result, we too often work to build up our biceps but completely ignore our souls. We typically think of masculine strength as physical, but what if true strength comes from inside, from your soul and its connection to God? When was the last time you worked out to strengthen that part of your being? Most of us know the stories of Jesus walking on water, which you'll hear next week from Chris and feeding thousands, which you'll hear today. But we easily gloss over the way Jesus sought solitude to build up his spiritual strength. Yes, even Jesus needed to rest and renew. In fact, Jesus established a rhythm. He engaged and then disengaged. He served and then withdrew. In those quiet times, Jesus took care of his soul by connecting with God and drawing life from him. If Jesus demonstrated the importance of withdrawing into solitude, how much more do we need to set aside times of respite in our lives? Of course, our culture doesn't help. Life moves so quickly that we can forget to tend our souls. But if you ignore your soul or pretend that you don't have one, you'll face problems just as your body sends you all kinds of uncomfortable signals when you neglect it physically. So will your soul. Obsessions, irritations, addictions, broken relationships, often these troubles point to a neglected soul Time, take time to be alone and make yourself utterly available only to yourself and to God. Connect with Him and in doing so, take care of your soul. How are you doing with that? How am I doing with that? 
devotional writer asked these questions. What do you tend to do when you're really stressed out? Are these activities more like escape mechanisms or do they feed your soul and connect you to God? What signals does your your soul send when you neglect its care? Where can you go to be alone with God? When? Make a list of places and times you can exercise the habit of connecting with Him. Frantic activity can keep us from time with God. God can become just background noise in our lives. Let me suggest one more thing about that. We have a track called Seven Minutes with God. You say, my life's pretty busy and and I have early calls in the morning. You can't believe how early I have to show up at the base uh, and on and on, right? And every one of us can can say those sorts of things, whether we're in the Air Force or out of the Air Force or whatever we do, every one of us can say that, right? My days are busy, and it starts from the moment I open my eyes and my feet hit the floor. Can you take seven minutes? I won't take time to go through the track. If we're out of them, you can see me and I'll make sure you get one. But can you take seven minutes with God? The second problem, the first is frantic activity. The second is apathy. That is too much withdrawal. Barclay says, second, there is a danger of too much withdrawal. Devotion that does not issue in action is not real devotion. Prayer that does not issue in work is not real prayer. We must never seek the fellowship of God in order to avoid the fellowship of men, but in order to fit ourselves better for it. The rhythm of the Christian life is the alternate meeting with God in the secret place and serving men in the marketplace. One of the older writers, J.C. Ryle, who I mentioned before, he wrote 130 years ago, said there are few unhappily in the church who need these admonitions about with, uh, not withdrawing or about withdrawing. There are, about, there are few in danger of, there are but few in danger of overworking themselves and injuring their own bodies and souls by excessive attention to others. There are few comparatively who need the bridle nearly so much as the spur. Do you identify yourself in either of these situations, frantic activity which makes God background noise to your life, or apathy and too much withdrawal? from life and from God. Well, verses 32 and 33, so they went away by themselves in a boat in a so- to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he has compassion on them 
because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. This planned rest that Jesus had for he and his disciples was interrupted by people in need. He wanted to be in a solitary place with his disciples, with the twelve, with the apostles, so that he could re-energize them. The solitary place, by the way, Luke 9.10 tells us was Bethsaida. Philip, by the way, was from Bethsaida. It was northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus' plan is interrupted. I want to ask you a question. How do you react when your plans are interrupted? Well, I have a nut good. (laughs) Do I hear an amen? (laughs) Jesus' plans are interrupted. His plans for himself, his plans for his disciples are interrupted. But he wasn't annoyed. He felt compassion. Luke chapter 9, verse 11, the parallel passage says he welcomed them. He wasn't irritated. He was not subject to being in a bad mood or taking it out on others. That's something that I have to work on. We have to work on. He had compassion. He taught them extensively. He provided for their needs. He treated them, he cared for them like, a, like sheep without a shepherd, lost and helpless, without guidance, without nourishment, without protection. It was an Old Testament motif, the sheep without a shepherd motif. The rulers of the people of God were often called shepherds. They were to be strong, caring leaders who guarded their nation like a flock. But instead, they put their own interest above the interest of the people. They exploited them, rather protecting them. They saw them as a source of money. They treated the people harshly rather than nurture them, protect them, and nurse them. They disregarded the people and allowed the people to be scattered. Therefore, God said in the Old Testament, He would intervene personally. He would be their shepherd, He said in Isaiah. He would send David in the millennium to shepherd them, Ezekiel 34. In Jesus' day, religious leaders were either playing at church, the Pharisees, or playing politics, the Sadducees. That was... the religious leaders in that day. Jesus had compassion on the crowd. Someone has said, what was it that drew men to Jesus? Yes, he spoke with authority and he did miraculous and wonderful deeds, but I think the one thing that men could not ignore was the compassion and love that came from his heart and onto his face and into his words and his deeds. If we abide in Him as He abides in us, we begin to see things differently. We begin to look at things with His eyes. He had compassion upon them. 
Notice that when Jesus landed in verse 34 and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to ask them, have you guys had lunch yet? Yes? No. What Bible are you reading? No, (laughs) you're reading the right one. You're reading the right one. Yeah, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. The first thing Jesus' compassion drove him to do was to teach them. What are we to learn from that? The greatest hunger is the famine of the Word of God. The greatest hunger is the famine of the Word of God. Jesus satisfies their spiritual need before He satisfies their physical need. Jesus satisfies their spiritual need before He satisfies their physical need. That's an important distinction. First thing He does for these people is not inquire as to whether they are hungry or not or have a place to lodge for the night. First thing he does to show his compassion for them is to teach them. There's such a dearth of teaching today. There's a lot of entertaining going on. but how much teaching. In the book, Hosea, we read this, My people are destroyed, God says, from lack of knowledge. And if you read the context, the lack of knowledge is lack of knowledge of the Word of God, lack of knowledge of the law, of the law. The best thing that Jesus could do, the greatest thing that he did for the people was he taught them. Oh, he would still take care of the physical need. He would still feed them before the day was done more lavishly than they expected. His disciples tried to figure out a way to give 5,000 men plus women plus children a bite When Jesus said, no, we're having a banquet out here in the grass. We're eating on the lawn. Because he knows that people are destroyed when the word of God's not taught. People are destroyed when the word of God is not taught and taught accurately. Jesus showed them compassion. One writer said, the man who cares nothing for the souls of other people is not like Jesus Christ. Well, by this time, we're told, verse 35, and this is the second part of our passage, we saw that Jesus cares in verses 30 to 34. Now we see that he satisfies in verses 35 to 44. 
verses 35 and 36, we read the problem. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Here's the problem stated, and here's the disciples' solution. Dismiss the people, send them on their way. But in verse 37, Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. And by the way, the word you in Greek is the word humes, and it is emphatic. You feed them. Now, it's interesting, as we see the other parallel passages, we see in John chapter 6, verses 5 to 7, we see Jesus challenging, and I'm going to turn to that passage, and you can write it down and, and look it up at another time. John chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, this is the parallel passage of the feeding of the 5,000. He said to Philip, remember who was from Bethsaida, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? But we see in verse 6, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. When he said to Philip, what should we do to feed all these people? He was simply testing Philip to see, would he respond by faith or would he respond by sight? We don't have food. We don't have money. We don't have this. We don't have that. Do you ever find yourself saying that? I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have the other thing. God hasn't supplied this. God hasn't supplied that. Can he supply it? Yes. So God is testing Philip. God tests us for good purposes. He tests us not so that we can fail. He doesn't test us so he can say, see, I told you, you still have a long way to go. We ought to know that anyhow. God tests us to refine our faith. He never tempts us to do something evil. And notice that he tests us not in the classroom, but in life's experiences. He tests us not in the classroom, but in life's experiences. John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And then his voice drops and he says, But how far will they go among so many? One writer said the disciples had two suggestions for solving the problem. Either send the people away to find their own food or raise enough money to buy a bit of bread for everybody. As far as the disciples were concerned, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and nothing could be done. With that kind of approach, they would have made ideal committee members. Someone has defined a committee as a group of people who individually can do nothing and collectively decide that nothing can be done. 
Have you seen those kind of committees? Been on them? The disciples' reply shows that there were inadequate resources. There was the impossibility of meeting the demand. However, Jesus didn't look at the problem that way. Jesus saw not the problem, but the opportunity to trust the Father and glorify his name. The disciples saw the problem, not the potential, on the basis of human wisdom. If only we had enough money, we could do something. But as one writer said, the first step is not to measure our resources, but to determine God's will and trust him. Boy, that's good. The first step is not to measure our resources, but to determine God's will and trust him to meet the need. That has been the direction of our church for a long time. That has been the wish of our church for a long time. I hope that won't change. We look in human terms with human wisdom in the flesh by sight. We must look by faith. We must live by faith. Well, back in Mark, chapter 6, then they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. And you know from the parallel passages that it was a little boy's lunch that, where they found these loaves and fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Notice how Mark gives us eyewitness testimony because it's, the, it's a eyewitness who would remember all the grass was green as could be. It must have been the spring of the year when this happened. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. By the way, giving thanks in that day. It's the word eulogeo. And the object of the blessing was not the food. The object of the blessing was God who provided it. When we pray for our food, when we pray for our meals, focus on the God who provided it, not the food that you're about to eat. That's what they did in that day. Well, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken bread, of broken pieces of bread and fish. Not crumbs, folks. These were pieces left over, unused. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. And then there would be the women and the children besides. J. Vernon McGee said, he commands them to do an impossible task. They must learn as we must learn that he always commands the impossible. The reason is obvious. He intends to do the work. By the way, the text seems to infer that 
as Jesus took the bread in his hands and the fish in his hands, he kept giving it out, is that as he was giving it out, it miraculously was making more. That's what the text leads us to believe. It isn't that all of a sudden the stack of bread that high showed up. Well, have so much, we have so much to get to. Let me try to spend two or three more minutes. We'll have our closing song. There are lots of rational explanations as to what happened. Don't you love it when people try to rationalize away the miraculous? They try to rationalize the way our God. Number, the first way they rationalize it, they say, well, what this really was, it wasn't really a meal of bread and fish. Uh, it was a sacramental or symbolic meal, much, of, much like the Lord's Supper is. We, we don't eat a loaf of bread, right? We eat a little wafer of bread. Uh, we don't drink a, a bottle of wine. We drink a little cup of wine. They say, well, that's what this was like. Everybody had a little crumb of bread. Everybody had a little piece of fish. The second rational explanation is that the numbers are exaggerated. There weren't that many people after all. The third explanation that I really love is that when this little boy came forth with his lunch, all the rest of the people were ashamed and the lunch that they were hiding under their robes, they suddenly took out. Oh boy. You, you know it takes more faith to be an unbeliever than to be a believer, don't you? The fourth rational explanation is it was optical illusion of some sort. The fifth is that it was just an overheated imagination on the part of the disciples. I guess the 12 baskets of leftovers were an overheated imagination also. Let's make some application real quickly. Number one, we must realize our inadequacy. We must realize our inadequacy. Number two, we must take our eyes off the little that we have and fix our eyes on the great God we have. Number three, we must ask first, not what do I have? What can I do? But we must ask first, what can God do if I'll trust him? What can God do if I'll trust him? One writer said, What shall keep faith alive and preserve us from sinking in despair? There is only one answer. We must look to Jesus. We must think on his almighty power and his wonders of old time. We must call to mind how he can create food for his people out of nothing and supply the wants of those who follow him even in the wilderness. And as we think these thoughts, we must remember that this Jesus still lives, never changes, and is on our side. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. What a God you are. What a magnificent God you are. To take care of our needs so abundantly. And all you ask is that we trust you.
that we realize our inadequacy, but we realize that you are more than abundantly adequate for any problem we face, any challenge we face. And may we live by faith and not by sight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.